Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Jacksonville writer Tim Gilmore describes the fascinating historic home Maribyrnong. It's in uh, this beautiful setting on the bluff over the St. John's River, uh, surrounded by oak trees, and uh, it looks like something out of a fairy tale. We'll discuss opportunities for students and young writers at the Florida Historical Quarterly. Harvard and Princeton publish books by authors who have published in the Florida Historical Quarterly. And we'll talk about special events happening right now as part of the 32nd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Hold on to me as we go As we roll down this unfamiliar road And although this wave is stringing us along Just know you're not alone I'm gonna make this place your home. Maribyrnong is an historic house that has been home to some fascinating people since it was originally constructed in 1876. Tim Gilmore recently wrote about Maribyrnong for the website jackspsychogeo.com. Gilmore teaches literature and writing at Florida State College at Jacksonville and is a frequent public speaker on Jacksonville history topics. He's been published in numerous magazines and has written many books. Tim Gilmore explains that Maribyrnong is located near downtown Jacksonville in an area called Empire Point. It's on a high bluff overlooking the river. It's a Queen Anne-style Victorian house. Uh, it's uh, rather large, especially for its time. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, uh, it's five levels, three stories, uh, so the levels include a basement in an attic. Uh, it has a corner tower with a crooked cupola on top of it. Uh, and it's got, uh, it supposedly has, I have not counted, but 121 windows. Uh, and it's, uh, it's in uh, this beautiful setting on the bluff over the St. John's River, uh, surrounded by oak trees. And uh, it looks like something out of a fairy tale. Maribyrnong is an unusual name for a beautiful house, Gilmore says that the origin of the name is unclear. So for the longest time, people have said that uh, Maribyrnong was a Maori uh, Indian word for paradise, uh, the Maori uh, uh, people from New Zealand. Uh, but uh, several people from New Zealand have said, uh, no, it's not. And uh, it's, it's not ever been traced to any kind of extant word, uh, except that there is a river 
uh, that flows, uh, it's not a long river, it flows through Melbourne, Australia. And uh, the spelling is a little bit different, but that is closer to anything that, you know, uh, anyone's actually been able to match. Mirabinong was built by Thomas Basnet about 11 years after the Civil War. Basnet was an astronomer and author of the book, The True Theory of the Sun. He was, yeah, and there was an earlier house there. There was a a house uh, called Purley Place that was built by a Thomas Purley in the 1850s. Thomas Basnet, an astronomer, uh, uh, bought the the property. The house burned and uh, Basnet, uh, the original house burned and Basnet uh, rebuilt and the house that he built was Maribyrnong. Uh, and uh, so it actually, it, it's uh, early owners are quite interesting. Uh, Basnet uh, was also married to uh, a scientist. And when he died, she married someone who has a, an interesting <laughs> record. It's, it's not quite clear um, how uh, legit his science was. Thomas Basnet died about 10 years after building Maribyrnong, but his wife, Eliza Wilbert, continued living there. Eliza Wilbur was also a respected scientist with published work. Tim Gilmore. She's quite fascinating. Uh, she, uh, she, she was published in Scientific American and several other places. She, she lectured before Harvard, possibly the first woman to do so. I've seen some documents that said that. I don't know if that is uh, 100% true. Um, but uh, yeah, she, she built a, a telescope, as a matter of fact, that... Uh, she ended up giving to uh, Bertha Foster, who was a friend of hers, who was helping start the University of Miami. This is a little bit later, the 1920s. Uh, but that telescope went down to um, Coral Gables uh, when the University of Miami uh, uh, began. Uh, she was uh, she was really she she uh, did a lot of different things. She was a, a, a writer as well. She wrote. <laughs> She wrote a, a, a book called The Ulysses, which is uh, in the form uh, or su- supposed to be in the form of uh, ancient Greek epic writing. And so the reference is to the Iliad, but um, she is writing about Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, so it's a, it's a book length uh, poem uh, that is trying to establish, uh, you know, this new, this relatively still new nation, America, in, you know, uh, ancient Greek uh, terms and forms. Eliza Wilbur married Matthew Suviel, a physician of questionable repute with money problems. Suviel tried to turn Maribyrnong into a health resort. Not a whole lot is known uh, about that, surprisingly. Um, I thought that I would be able to find more. What I found most when I uh, uh, dug into the, uh, the, the career of Matthew uh, Suviel was that uh, he had moved around a lot and placed some rather outlandish claims about a, a, a spirometer that he ha- and respirator that he had invented. Um, and there's a, a, a current um, pulmonary specialist, uh, Richard Johnson in Boston, who um, writes about uh, Suviel's invention and says it's not really much of an invention, it's just a box with holes. There had already been, um, you know, spirometers before this. And, 
And so Suviel, uh, you know, supposedly invented this, but he moved from place to place for a while. He moved from um, from Quebec uh, into the Boston area, and he advertised saying that his invention um, cured all kinds of different illnesses, um, really um, vague terms. Um, and uh, so I'm not clear on how he and Eliza, uh, who was Thomas Baznet's widow, uh, you know, met, but they married and he moved to uh, Maribyrnong. And there is, uh, you know, some notice that he turned the place into some kind of, in, you know, infirmary for people who uh, had, you know, some kind of respiratory problems. You know, Richard Johnson uh, uh, in, his, uh, in his writing about Suviel, thinks that he was actually running from uh, creditors and litigants and um, Maribyrnong was his final, <laughs> the place where he ended up in, the, in that chase. After Dr. Suviel dies, Elizabeth Wilbur sells Maribyrnong to suffragist Grace Wilbur Trout, who greatly expanded the property in the 1920s. She added a swimming pool, fish ponds, tents for picnics, and a ballroom to Maribyrnong. Tim Gilmore. She had done uh, a lot of work for suffrage in Illinois, uh, and Illinois actually passed uh, suffrage laws before the 19th Amendment so that, you know, women could vote for uh, state and local issues and uh, uh, candidates in Illinois before they could, they could vote, uh, you know, nationally. So she's, she's related to Eliza Wilbur, and Eliza sells her the house, and she, she moves down to Maribyrnong. Uh, and uh, marries uh, Thomas Trout, so so Grace Wilbur becomes Grace Wilbur Trout, and the uh, the house stays in the Trout family for uh, the better part of of a century. Trout family members claim to have discovered evidence of Native American inhabitants on the Maribyrnong property. In uh, 1980, the Jacksonville Historical Society had uh, an event that it uh, referred to as a discussion with its founders, with the Historical Society's founders, and uh, one of them was uh, Antoinette Trout, who was descended, and she spoke of um, burial mounds, is what she called them, that were, were found on the property, and she's it's you, you kind of have to take some of what she says with a grain of salt <laughs> because uh for example uh she there's there's a wine cellar at the bottom of the bluff uh and the wine cellar actually dates to uh pearly place before Baznet built uh Maribyrnong. and there was an underground passage to the wine cellar from uh from the house itself from uh, the, the first house uh, but Antoinette Trout uh, was a teetotaler and did not like to call the wine cellar the wine cellar, so she called it the pirate's den. And so she said, she said she talked about pirates and Indians, things that there's no kind of evidence that anyone at Maribyrnong was ever worried about pirates, right, <laughs> uh, in the 1800s. But she said that the house had a cupola and a widow's walk because people had to be on the lookout for pirates and Indians. So you kind of have to take some of what she says with a grain of salt, but she says that uh, they found burial mounds, that's what she calls them, and that they called the city, and the city said, leave them alone. Uh, I'm not aware of exactly where those were or any kind of, I, I'm pretty sure no uh, archaeological uh, excavations uh, or studies of any kind have happened on the site. 
In the 1980s, Trout descendants wanted to develop the property by building townhouses, but their Empire Point neighbors thwarted those efforts. Parts of the estate were sold. A new home was built between Maribyrnong and the wine cellar that was originally connected to the house by an underground passage. After nearly a century in Trout family hands, Maribyrnong was purchased in 1992 by Joe and Diantha Ripley. So the Ripleys uh, were the highest bidders. The house was owned by, uh, by the bank. It was in bad shape. <laughs> and uh, they had the courage to take it over, you know, 6,000 square feet. And uh, so they, they, they took it over. They have been there uh, ever since. Uh, they did put it on the market a couple of years ago, um, but uh, they were unable to, uh, to find, uh, you know, to find buyers. So, um, uh, uh, Joe Ripley was, I think he was 55 when he, he bought the house and, um, you know, now he's in his, his eighties, uh, and, uh, it takes, uh, you know, it takes a lot to keep a house like this going. Um, but there's, they're still there. And, um, Diantha Ripley is an artist. She has her studio and the, uh, the top floor of the, the corner tower, which, which is an awfully, you know, a uh, romantic setting for an, for an art studio. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they periodically allow the house to be on home tours and, and things like that. Maribyrnong is an historic home with a fascinating history, but Tim Gilmore says its future is uncertain. It's on the National Register of Historic Houses, uh, and it is, I mean, it's considered, I think, um, uh, Wayne Wood, who uh, wrote, uh, some of your listeners are certainly familiar with Jacksonville's Architectural Heritage, which is a, a, a tome, a wonderful book, um, calls it one of the, the 10 most uh, significant houses, in historic houses in Jacksonville. I am not, you know, really sure what the current owner's plans are at, at this point. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a house that's well-known and well-loved. So hopefully whenever it comes to that time, hopefully it'll find the right people to continue to take care of it. We spoke with Jacksonville writer Tim Gilmore about the historic home Maribyrnong. You can find out more at his website, jackspsychogeo.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly, what do you find particularly satisfying about your work? I really enjoy the interaction with authors, and that comes in a variety of forms at 
conferences where I meet with them, sometimes for the first time when I hear their papers that they're presenting. And then later, as we work through the revisions and the copy edits on their work, uh, working with first-time graduate students as new authors or newly minted PhDs is also especially exciting. It, it's gratifying when, after a few years, I receive a letter from an academic book publisher requesting permission to reprint a section of the article that the young scholar wrote for us so that it can be published in the book that is being uh, published by the press on the same topic. We usually receive one to three such requests every year. Uh, the presses include uh, some you would expect from the South, including the University Press of Florida and the University of Georgia Press, uh, University of Alabama Press, University of North Carolina Press, University of South Carolina Press. But some you might not expect, including Harvard and Princeton, published books by authors who have published in the Florida Historical Quarterly. Now, Connie, you teach history courses at the University of Central Florida. Are students involved in the publication of the Florida Historical Quarterly? Yes, and that's another one of the very gratifying aspects of my job. So most semesters, but not every semester, I have an intern who is working with me on the quarterly. And uh, the first thing I tell them is a good intern is someone who's very detail-oriented, and they come to appreciate that. There's actually course credit students can receive for working on the journal, right? Yes, uh, the interns receive course credit for it, but there's another way in which they receive course credit. Two years ago, uh, we put together a certificate program in editing, and it's an interdisciplinary program. So some of the credits come in the English department, some in the art department, and uh, I teach a course in journal editing and historical document editing. We talked about what is most satisfying about editing the Florida Historical Quarterly. What are some of the challenges? Well, there are a number of challenges, but certainly one of the most challenging aspects of editing is producing special issues of the quarterly. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, special issues are devoted to a single topic. And while it might seem like it would be easy to produce a special issue, it's actually quite difficult takes a lot of planning. Also, all the authors have to submit at a specific deadline time, which is often a big challenge in and of itself. For example, we produced a special issue on the 50th anniversary of NASA in 2008, but not all special issues are anniversary issues. Another one I can think of is a special issue that we produced on the culture of Miami, that one was edited by Julian Chambliss. Uh, the special issue on NASA was edited by Dr. Amy Foster. And the job of the editor of a special issue is to help conceptualize the project itself and invite the authors to contribute an essay. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Foster as she's a frequent guest scholar on topics about the space program. So special issues usually have a, a guest editor. Why is that? The guest editor is someone who has specific knowledge about that project or, or that topic. They have published on the topic, they're well known in the field, and they are able to contact other contributors and have them agree to be part of the project. 
Now, it's always fun to get special issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly in the mail because they're often larger issues. Oh, yes. Special issues have more authors than the usual issue of the quarterly. But the largest special issue that I have been associated with appeared in 2013 in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the United States District Court of the Middle District Court of Florida. 27 authors contributed to it, and it came out as 250 pages of content, a really big issue of the quarterly. The two-year project published the papers from a symposium on the 50-year history of the court. And the way they organized the content was really interesting. They selected papers that illustrated important cases that appeared before the court and had a national influence. Those cases were divided into uh, civil cases, criminal cases, and civil rights cases. And it really proved to be a very important publication. We had lots of requests from bar associations, not just in Florida, but uh, around the country for a copy of that issue of the quarterly. It seems like attorneys are always big fans of history. Oh, they are. And they are big contributors to the Florida Historical Quarterly. Sometimes I laugh and say that people become attorneys so they can feed their habit of history. (laughs) Well, thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The 32nd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is underway in a hybrid format online and in Eatonville, Florida. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Zora Neale Hurston was an African-American author and anthropologist, primarily known for her novels including her best-known work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, written in 1937. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities takes place each year in Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, Florida, one of the oldest incorporated all-black communities in the United States. The popular festival usually attracts tens of thousands of people each year, but the 32nd annual festival, taking place through January 31st, is a little different. Dr. Scott French is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida and the Chair of the Zora Festival Academic Committee. He talked to me about the conference's theme of Afrofuturism and the creative ways that the organizers have adapted to the challenges of holding the festival during the COVID-19 pandemic. This year's theme is Afrofuturism, what is its sound? And uh, this is building on last year's conference theme, which was what is Afrofuturism? We had a whole array of scholars come in and address the question, uh, just sort of getting, defining the term. But this year, we're really focusing in on sound, on music, oral traditions, the sonic imagination, as uh, Dr. Julian Chambliss calls it. Even though there are many definitions for Afrofuturism, 
It can be described as an artistic movement within the black community that includes elements of science fiction, art, technology, African traditions, and black identity. This year's Zora Festival delved further into the theme of Afrofuturism through several COVID-friendly virtual components. Dr. Scott French. So the idea this year was how can we extend the conference beyond the physical face-to-face experience that we typically have and ensure that the conference can go forward. Um, And we built in uh, a kind of hybrid format where there'll be a limited face-to-face conference, but we'll also open it up to the world. So some our presenters will actually be in their homes or in their offices presenting, but we'll have a kind of town hall audience at UCF downtown. Last year, the festival expressed the theme of Afrofuturism with a Black Panther masquerade party a showing of a science fiction film from 1984 called Brother from Another Planet, along with presentations and scholarly conversations. This year, Zora Festival organizers found a new way to celebrate the legacy of Zora Neale Hurston by virtually commemorating her 130th birthday. So the idea was this year, how could we do something like that in a virtual environment? And uh, the festival organizers, Dr. N.Y. Nathiri and others, came up with the idea of a birthday party a virtual birthday party celebrating Zora Neale Hurston's 130th birthday. And the way that they did this was to allow any participant to order or invite participants to order a beautifully designed Zora Neale Hurston commemorative birthday box that included either grape juice or champagne and a cupcake. And uh, for the event, we all logged in and they had a DJ and there was dancing. Uh, You have to imagine this, uh, but it really did work. Um, The DJ was fantastic. Uh, We all raised our glasses to Zora Neale Hurston's memory. It was a spectacular event. I truly enjoyed it. And I think while we all want to be together in the same room, this was as close as we could possibly be to recreating that experience. Dr. Scott French is offering another virtual component to the festival this year, an instructor-led Afrofuturism syllabus that's available free to the public. The syllabus features podcast interviews, webinars, and other educational resources exploring Afrofuturism and the Hurston legacy. I have worked to develop a public-facing syllabus. The idea there is that people who did not attend last year's conference, uh, in which we sort of defined the term, what is Afrofuturism, they could go back and listen to podcasts and explore that theme on their own, with some guidance from me, but primarily listening to the podcasts uh, that were conducted last year at the conference. This year's Zora Festival also includes a drive-in movie experience featuring Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, along with virtual presentations from keynote speakers, an education day with free virtual programs, and a virtual Sankofa cooking experience. For more information about the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, go to zorafestival.org. For more information about the open access Afrofuturism syllabus, visit stars.library.ucf.edu slash Afrofuturism. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week You can also listen as a podcast or online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. 
Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.